welcome to another episode of the Transform Sales Podcast, where we talk all about the science of selling STEM. Today, I am so excited to have Liz Hyman with me. How are you, Liz? I'm great. How are you? I am doing amazing. Let me tell you guys a little bit about Liz. She's the national sales expert and the founder and CEO of Regarding Sales. Her firm focuses on building B2B operating systems that drive extraordinary growth. She uses strategy and process to create a roadmap for success that focuses clients on getting the results that they need. Liz is an experienced international political economist, well-schooled in digging through data to interpret results. Woo. With her unique background, combined with her focus on strategy and process, Liz delivers clients concrete solutions for difficult sales problems. She she is the youngest of five siblings and lived in California as well as Japan until finally settling on the big island with her daughter. So Liz, how does a political economist turn into sales and then start their own business? Tell us about your journey. Wow, it's been an interesting journey. Yeah, so I grew up in the world of sales, as you know, Esleen. My dad is Steve Hyman of Miller Hyman fame. He started the company Miller Hyman. Some of you may recognize the book Strategic Selling or Conceptual Selling. And so I kind of got into sales naturally. It wasn't my choice. So I went to school. My I was going to study peace studies. And I did. I studied peace studies. And then I decided, well, you know what? Most conflicts are about economics in the long run. So let's study economics. And so I studied international political economy. And my dissertation research was on the role of public opinion in U.S.-Japanese trade negotiations. So, you know, you would think it would be related, but actually I learned a lot about public opinion and about how words change belief systems. And, you know, like one of my favorite stories, sorry, I'm going to just do this really quickly, is okay. while I was working on my dissertation and I was living in Japan, they had a drought. And the Japanese mm. believe with all their hearts and souls and minds that the Japanese rice is the best rice in the world. And with that belief, if you have to import rice, what do you do? Well, the ministers of trade decided to do was create mixed rice. So they brought in rice and they mixed it all together. It was long grain rice, short grain rice, brown rice, basmati rice, and then try cook that mess up. It's terrible. <laughs> Right. So confirming the belief that the Japanese rice is the best rice in the world. And when I brought my friends in Japan, Calrose rice, which is what I eat here and what we grow in California, they were like, this is really good. <laughs> I'm like, no kidding. And it's only a fraction of what you pay for rice. So I learned a lot about how words frame the way people think. And because I was looking at public opinion and watching how the information was coming out to them and then how they were interpreting it and how public opinion changed. It really, it was really interesting. And so it impacts what I do now a lot. I went to, back to work for Miller Hyman. So I started working there very young. I went back to work for them in 1998 as the director of Asia Pacific. And I can tell you all about that if you want. And then when they sold the company, it became clear at some point that really probably wasn't great for me to still be hanging around as one of the original Hymans. And so I started my own business. And then I worked with my sister, who's also a sales consultant, Alice Hyman, for a while. And then I restarted my own business. And so that's how I got where I am now. So you've literally been all the way around the world and back 
And I really like the fact that a part of what you did when you were in school was to understand the Japanese culture living in Japan. And then when you stepped into the corporate realm, you became the director of the APAC region, Asia Pacific region. So how did that, your time in Japan help you lead teams and build a business in the Asia Pacific region? I think the most important thing I learned as an exchange student, because I was an exchange student in college and then I did my graduate work as a Ministry of Education, Japanese Ministry of Education researcher, Kenkusei. Here's what I learned is that people approach the world differently, which means they approach problems differently. So one day I needed business cards and I went and I like my dad called from Millerheim and said, I'm going to teach a program and I need you to translate go get some business cards. I'll be there in three days or a week or whatever it was. And I went to get business cards and they're like, okay, we'll have them in two weeks. And I'm like, if I pay you more, can I have them sooner? And they're like, no. <laughs> that was the dumbest wow. question they ever heard in their life. In the US, you're like, yes. How much are you willing to pay? I will tell you, right? And so I began this process of learning about how people see problems differently. And one of the reasons I really believe in a diverse workforce is because the cultural box we grow up in, and I don't mean this in a negative way, when we talk about being outside the box, we're talking about being outside that cultural box, not just outside any box, right? Yeah. So that means that the moment I put people of cultural diversity, of any diversity into the room together, mm -hmm. we're naturally, when we say outside the box, we're talking about two different boxes. Mm. And so you have this amazing thing that happens when you start to put people together of diversity and because they see the world differently. And I would not have known this had I not lived in Japan. And I'd be like, okay, this makes no sense to me, right? Whatever it was, you know, there were a million things every long, I'd be like, this makes no sense to me because I was looking at it from the perspective of an American on a Japanese culture. And sometimes I was amazed and sometimes I was appalled. But so then when I became the director of Asia Pacific, I understood a couple of things. One is I understood how Japanese people buy things because I bought things with them and spent time with them and learned with them. So I began to understand how Japanese culture works, how they buy, how they think. Also, my research helped me understand that. So then you can make some assumptions about how is that going to be in the rest of Asia and their differences and their similarities. But so I used all of that knowledge to help me to grow the Asia Pacific region. And when I started at Miller-Hyman, they were losing $200,000 a year. And when I left two years later, we just, we hadn't quite hit a million, but we were about to hit a million. So, wow. and on track for 5 million in five years. So it was just taking everything. And when you start with the place that there isn't just one way to do it, there isn't just one answer to the problem, that if I look at it from a different perspective, I might come up with a different answer, really changes the way you problem solve. Hmm. So I'm curious, you know, in this world that we're living in these days, it's such a global place. And when we think about leaders taking over positions, a lot of times they're taking over failing territories or regions or, or you know, places like you mentioned. What are some of the tips that you can give them to really start riding the ship? Like, what are some of those things that you would tell them will help kind of get from a loss to really having a, a big gain? I think the first thing is to understand your data. And I'm amazed how many times I go into a company and I'll ask them for things. Okay, tell me, mm -hmm. tell me who sold what to whom. Tell me how much of what widget have you sold. Tell me 
Like I'll just start asking questions. Let's look at all your clients. I want to do a white space mapping. Let's pull out a list of all of your clients and figure out what they bought. And I start playing with the data and I really do play with data differently than a lot of people do. I'll just start playing with it and go, well, what if this? Well, what if this? Well, what's the difference between this and this? And I'll start creating, I think in spreadsheets, it's a really weird way to think, but I do think in spreadsheets. Um, I think it comes up from my training. So you go into the data and you find out what's really going on. Mm. Which distributors are selling and which ones aren't? What are your distributors selling? Are the things that your distributors selling profitable? Who are your different salespeople? What do they sell? Mm. What do they focus on? Where are they successful? What kinds of companies are they successful in? What kinds of companies are buying from you? What kinds aren't buying from you? Like just start playing with the data. Don't have any expectations. Just start putting out tables and comparing things and looking for things and you will find the answers that you need because you'll say okay this is where we're selling the most whatever that is and then we have to stop and go is that the most profitable place we could be selling is that what Mm. we should be selling and if the answer is yes then how do i increase that do i sell more of that to more different people do i sell more of that to my existing clients who one of the things that i learned the minute i get in is if you have existing clients, you're leaving millions and millions of dollars on the table every single day. So mm-hmm. what's going on with my key accounts? What's going on with the accounts that should be key accounts, but I haven't done anything to grow them. And then what other things can I be selling to my existing clients? Right. Mm. So I've got them in the door. So that's how you start. You just start playing with the data until you can figure out what's a logical path. And what we don't do is what most people do, which is they say, okay, corporate gave us a number. $5 million, you get 10 of it, you get 10 of it, you get 10 of it, go. That is not strategic and it's not helpful. So you have to really decide where do I want this business to grow? Which kinds of accounts do I want them to go after? Which kinds of accounts do I want them to grow? You have to really be thoughtful and strategic. And one of the reasons companies get in so much trouble is low hanging fruit, right? Oh, we'll just go for the low hanging fruit. Or the mentality, I can sell anything. You know, I can deliver anything. So you sell it, I'll deliver it. Well, none of that is the basis for making business decisions. That's a basis for figuring out how to get the highest commission, which I value in my salespeople. But now I want to direct them in a way that helps the business grow and therefore will help them have higher commissions in the future. So it's about looking at all of the pieces together. Did that make any sense at all? (laughs) It makes absolute sense. It's really, you have to start at a granular level, right? So a lot of people don't like starting at that granular level. Sometimes they start at a 50 million foot view, but you start at the granular level because you're right, data doesn't lie. Right. So where are we selling? What are we selling? Who is selling? Right. Like, let's just start with some data. And then once we start with the data, we figure out, okay, we're doing really well here. Why are we not replicating this success in this area? Or why are we, like you said, we're leaving so much money on the table because all of our customers only have one of our products or one of our services. Why are we not doing upsells? Then you go into the strategy. And I think so many people like to do it backwards. They're like, oh, this is what we need. Okay. We need to have 20% year over year growth. But where is it coming from and how are we going to make it? Yeah. And so we'll just plop it down without any data. It's really interesting. One client I was working with many years ago, I was like, okay, well, where do you want to grow? And they're like automotive. You know, we do great in automotive. I'm like, okay, well, let's look at it. So I pull out my favorite spreadsheet, which is company, sales rep, products, how much they bought of each, you know, size of the company, number of employees, whatever it is that you need to figure out what your growth potential is. And I went, okay. You have seven automotive companies. They buy one product. 
Will they buy the other products? Why don't you go figure out if they'll buy the other products before you decide if you're going to focus on automotive? Because if they're only going to buy one product, your potential for growth is really small. They had no idea because they'd never looked at the data that way. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, so we know our product works best in this vertical. Why? You just like, how do you know that? Because like you said, in automotive, yeah, there's a huge win, but the sales cycle is so long. Like, and can the company afford to float this long sales cycle to only get one product sold? Or does it make sense for us to switch industries so we can kind of say, okay, we can get faster wins. Maybe it's a smaller ticket item, but it's faster and more widgets, right? Or maybe it's got a higher profit margin. Or maybe Mm -hmm. I have to start with this product to get in the door. And then I sell my higher profit margin products, but not to this industry. Or, you know, there's all kinds of things that could be true. So you have to start asking the question. And one of the things that I've learned over the years is sometimes those key accounts, the most important accounts, are the least profitable. And the other thing I find is that they'll be, if you take the clients and you put them in order of, highest sales to lowest sales, and you look at the bottom 20%, they're not worth your time because altogether they make up a fraction of your highest account. And you're like, Mm. how much time does it take to service these 50 accounts? What if I turned those 50 into, I got rid of them and got three at a better size, right? I could replace them with three companies that don't even buy a lot. So it's looking at all of the information to figure out where are we putting our effort and how much sales time does it take to sell those 50 accounts that are spending, I mean, seriously, $300 a year in some cases. Mm. And you're like, and your top client spends $300,000 a year. So how can you justify that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I need a lot of them. Do you really need a lot of them? If they're buying online and you don't have to do anything, you get thousands of them and who cares hallelujah that's great revenue but if your salespeople have to work on it how do you justify the salesperson's time yeah and the account people and the onboarding in a three hundred dollar or five hundred dollar or a thousand dollar sale and this is the kind of stuff you really got to think about the reason i'm about data is i spent three hours combing through a customer's data a client's data yesterday and i'm so totally in the data mindset right now (laughs) you're like your mind is all about the data So you went from your father's company, you said, hey, I think it's probably time for me to leave. When you had to make that decision, although the company had been sold and it was acquired by another company, talk to us about that transition that you went through, knowing that you'd worked in this company for like, literally you grew up in the company and you had to leave. What did you go through? How did you know it was time? That's the first question. And the second question is, what was the process you used to move forward? So there are a couple of things. Remember that my focus was on Japan. So that was part of one of the things that drove me. But when I was at Miller-Hyman, there were a number of things that made me say, this is probably time for me to leave. But the moment came when I said, okay, my contract was that when the company hit a million dollars, I started to get 10% of revenue instead of the salary I was getting, which was relatively low comparatively. Mm. And he looked at me and said, we're not going to honor that contract. Oh, so if you okay. want to stay, you're going to stay at the salary that you're getting with no commissions. And I said, no, thank you. I guess you don't want me to be here anymore. And he so smiled you and, shook my hand and I left. Wow. And so that was, you know, it was really obvious. And I think we should all do that. I think that there comes a point where you say, this is what I'm worth. And if somebody doesn't see the value, then go figure out if somebody else sees the value. So the reason I went to work for myself was I really wanted to do stuff relating to Japan. 
And I don't know why I didn't try to go get an Asia Pacific job. It just seemed natural to me that it was time to start thinking about, and I started a company at that time called Regarding Japan. And my concept was, I was going to have this company with two parts, and you'll laugh at this. One part was going to be consulting, because I knew tons of people who could do consulting on business between the U.S. and Japan. And my idea was, okay, well, we'll grow it. You know, it'll be Japan, and then we'll add Korean scholars and experts, and then, you know, whatever. The other part of it would be, and this, remember, is in 2002. The other part, is, and we were still using, I think at that point, we were probably still using Dogpile instead of Google. And Google was, you know, not our number one choice of things to do. And I thought, okay, here's what I'm going to do. The other part of the business is going to be like a directory. This is how I thought of it. So if you're in Chicago and you're a sushi chef, you put your name on here for 5 or $10 a year. And then anybody who wants to know why anything about Japan, then they just go into the database, right? Mm. And I went to my dad, my brilliant dad, and I said, dad, this is what I want to do. And he looked at me and said, that's not a business. (laughs) (laughs) And I look back now and go, yeah, that was a business. That was actually a business. Mm -hmm. So, um, but in, in any case, I started doing regarding sales and then I still ended up doing coaching, teaching programs for Miller Hyman. And over time, I found that my clients were not in the regarding sales area. They were just business and sales. I mean, regarding Japan stuff, they were in the, just business and sales. And then when I, I moved to Hawaii and I thought, oh, this will be great. But I'm on the big island of Hawaii and all of the business between Japan and Hawaii was happening in Oahu. And so pretty soon I just started doing sales and marketing consulting. And mm. um, I was doing a lot of marketing consulting on a small island. And then when I came back, after 14 years in Hawaii, I came back and just started getting back into the world of, into the world, really, and more into the world of sales. Mm. So sales and marketing, let's do some myth busters here. A lot of people think, oh, sales and marketing, they're the same thing. If you're a good salesperson, you can be a good marketing person. If you're a good marketing person, you can be a good salesperson. So tell us from your opinion, what's the biggest difference there? So... First of all, the difference between sales and marketing is that as a salesperson, I'm about individual engagement with people and helping them solve their individual problems. My job in marketing is to help people identify me as a potential solution to a problem, even a problem they didn't know they had, maybe. Maybe I'm helping them identify that there's a problem or that there's a problem that can be solved. They may not know that. They may know they have a problem, but they don't think it can be solved. They may not even know that, that it's a problem or a possibility for the future. That's the primary difference. Now, some of that has come back together because in a world where people buy online, marketing is moving the needle until they make the purchasing decision. But any decision that is made that requires an individual to engage with the customer in order for that decision to be made, that's really where sales steps in. Mm. So so if you are completely 100% digitally driven business where all of the buying happens online, you don't have a sales department. Your marketing department is your sales department in that case, because all sales happen that way. But the moment you start having, and I really focus on business to business complex sales. So the moment you start having business to business engagements, you have a sales department. So as that engagement gets more complex, meaning you have multiple people involved in the buying decision, it's a big dollar amount. It's going to impact multiple departments. It could take six to nine months, 12 months. I have a client that Five years is their sales cycle because they sell to the Department of Transportation. 
So from the time that it, they decide to do a project, it could be five years until it actually happens. So hmm. that's kind of the difference between sales and marketing. And I really moved, when I was in Hawaii, it made sense on my little island in the middle of the Pacific to be focused more on marketing because most of it is business to consumer and the stuff that's business to business is business to small business because there are no big businesses there. Except like selling coffee, coffee is a huge industry in my little island. And some of that was business to business complex because they were selling to resellers or to restaurants or anyway. But when I came back to the bigger world where marketing has become so complex. There's not even such a thing as somebody who's a marketing expert who can do the digital, the content, the advertising, SEO, the web, like knowing all of those things has become so big that if you are selling to enterprise or you have a huge business to consumer company, one person can't know everything they need to know. So I started focusing on sales only Although I do a lot of messaging and positioning with my customers, with my clients. But the point is that in a business to business complex sale, the same kinds of things have to happen all of the time. So we keep, I can help them build all of that. But when you get in the marketing side, you need multiple experts to make that happen. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. I actually, when I started my business, I started it and I was um, an outsourced sales marketing manager for small businesses. And I soon realized that, oh, I really don't like marketing. <laughs> yeah, it's just not for me. Because as you said, sales is the one-to-one. -one. It's the, how can I convince this person to move from one step to the next step? Whereas marketing, it's like, hey, I'm a person in this world. Come identify me. And so like you, I'm very metrics driven. And the marketing metrics, I call them kind of warm and fuzzy, right? It's like you can't really get a direct ROI on exactly what you're doing and how that impacts the sales. Well, we can actually. Okay. We actually can if we do it right. So this is one of the things that I do help companies do. What happens is that the ROI is not a short-term ROI. So in marketing, we tend to focus on conversions, meaning mm -hmm. somebody downloaded, somebody pressed a button, somebody agreed to a meeting, whatever it was, that that's, there's conversions and that's fine. But there's a difference between conversions and a marketing qualified lead and a sales qualified lead, right? So a marketing qualified lead meets a certain set of criteria. A sales qualified lead has to be valid enough for a salesperson to say, I have a super busy day with a whole bunch of clients who need my time and attention. And I'm actually, this is worth me paying attention to, right? Mm -hmm. And then, then sales goes on to qualify it further, right? So this is qualified to deliver to sales. Now sales qualifies out those that are not, it's not the right timeline. It's not whatever, what it's not the right product fit. They don't have the budget, whatever. So there's this qualifying process that has to happen. So in the midst of all of that is the tracking. And what happens is our tracking is very poor. Yeah. So you have to set up your CRM such that I know the first touch happened here. You have to be able to have multiple tags associated with a customer under source. Mm -hmm. So maybe the first time we talked to them was at a, at a trade show and maybe they didn't talk to us for three years and then we sent out something. And now there's actually two, mm -hmm. two lead sources because we wouldn't have had the second conversation if we hadn't met them at the trade show. And so what we think is, oh, well, we didn't make enough money on that trade show. Well, maybe we did. It just took three years to do it. 
Mm. So that's what we need to know. And we need to know the lifetime value of the client. So I might convert a lot more through other marketing methods that don't last as long, that don't buy as much, but the ones that I meet at the trade show that are really ideal customers, it may take longer for them to buy, but they may buy 10, 20, 30 times as much and stay with us longer. So what's we have to look at the short term, but we also have to look at the long term, the lifetime value of a customer to really know what works and what doesn't work. And it's very complicated. And so you are, I would say, or what you do or did, I would consider you a strategic marketing advisor, right? Because it's you're giving people those metrics that matter. One of the things that I find with a lot of the marketing firms that are out there is they're just focused on pay-per-click or they're just focused on LinkedIn. They're just only focused in their little silo. And it's like, well, how does it play into the big picture of what we need? And like you said, understanding those conversion points. So, okay, we went to a trade, so we got a hundred leads those leads are in the system and you're like, oh, we're not going back to that trade show next year because nobody converted, right? But it's the continuous touch. They're opening our newsletters. They're doing something. They're clicking on links. They're not raising their hand yet, but they're doing those passive things to let you know that I'm still here. Yeah. And we need to be really clear about this is the customer journey thing, right? What is yeah. our customer's journey and who are the people that become part of the customer journey that actually have the ability to start the sales process. Mm, yeah, that's good. So tell us about your current venture because we're now we're back in the States. So we've gone around the world and we're back in the States. Tell us about your current company. So my company is called Regarding Sales and I focus on strategy and process. So what I believe is that activity without strategy or process is chaos, mm. right? So if you don't want chaos, then you have to have a strategy and processes to support it. And many sales organizations do not have that. And so when you talk to the CEO or the founder about sales, they will say things like, oh, my sales team drives me crazy. Sometimes they'll say things like they all need to be fired and we need to hire all new ones. Or they'll say things like, it's totally unpredictable. I cannot run my business based upon the information that I get. It's unpredictable. They're unmanageable. It's chaos. And I hear this over and over and over again. And even if you don't say the words out loud, if you're a CEO or a founder, chances are you're feeling some of it. And I know that because when I'll say it, people will go, oh, yes, it's totally chaotic. I'm like, yes, I knew that. So how do we fix that? Well, one is we need to have processes. One, we need a strategy. If salespeople are just arbitrarily selling, so what? So you're selling. But you have a vision and values and a mission, a vision for where you want to be in the future. Are the things that you're selling now taking you where you want to go, where you believe your growth path is? Are these the clients that will grow with you and, and stay with you? Are these the clients that as you develop your product, it's going to fit them? Or are you trying to develop a product to fit everybody? Because your salespeople are selling to everybody and everybody has different needs. So is your sales organization directed in such a way that they can be successful and you can be successful. So you've got to start with strategy. You've got to start with things like your value, vision, and mission, vision, values, and mission. Thank you. I always do that backwards in case you didn't notice that um, from what everybody else says. And then you need to know who your ideal customer is or who your ideal customers are. Who am I selling to? What industries? But what about the people in those industries, the companies in those industries make them really ideal? And then you need to, how am I positioned in the marketplace, right? 
vis-a-vis -vis my customer's problem, vis-a-vis -vis the competition, how am I positioned? How do I talk about me as a company and what I deliver and who I deliver it to? And then the, like, if you think about tennis shoes, how's Nike positioned versus Adidas versus mm. Asics, right? They all have totally different positioning in the marketplace. They spend billions of dollars trying to make sure everybody knows how they're positioned in the marketplace. Just do it, right? And then we have to understand value proposition. If it's a business to business complex sale, we have multiple buyers that we need a set different value proposition. We need to understand what is their relationship to the problem and how do I talk to them about it? So that's the beginning of building strategy and messaging. And then we have to think about process. What is my sales process? How does it fit into my CRM? How do I manage it? What is my sales strategy? What are those numbers that we came up with and how am I really gonna hit them? What industries make sense? which people make sense, which products make sense, all of that stuff. Those are the kinds of things. If I have key accounts, what is my process for developing a strategy for each of those key accounts? So all of those kinds of things that are repeatable and predictable and enable a company to have some idea of what's going to actually happen in sales <laughs> instead of just drop, you know, I always I have a pictures of you, you drop the, the opportunities in the top. It's this black box and you pray stuff comes out the bottom. Well, <laughs> I don't know who always says a prayer is not a strategy. It's a good start, but it's not going to get you where you need to go. All the positive energy in the world isn't going to turn those into close deals if you don't have a good process for doing it. So that's what I do now. I love it because, you know, we, we started and you were talking about the data, the tactical bits, and then now you're talking about the strategy. And so really what you do and you help your customers do is you're like bridging this whole black box because you got to have the strategy, you got to have the tactical, because that's how we ensure we build a thriving sales organization. So just having those tactical bits of the bits and pieces doesn't help if we don't understand who the individual buyers within our selling situation are, what value propositions we need to give them, how we speak to them, what's the messaging. I mean, like all of these things. And so like when a CEO or sales leader is like, oh, these salespeople suck. My question is always like, Oh, really? So tell me, what have you done? Like, what's your contribution How to this, right? Like, what, what have you done? And they're like, well, I'm the visionary. I created the company or I sold for 20 years. And I'm like, yeah, but we have to change. It's not the same as it was 20 years ago. Right. And I see that a lot. So I have two distinctly different customers I focus on. One is startups with investors who are demanding results and the startups don't have to deliver it. But the other is companies who've been around 20 or 30 years and they're going, um, yeah, this isn't working anymore. <laughs> like, and you're like, well, no kidding. It's been 20 years. Let's rethink it. And so, you know, and it's hard because you really have to start over and reposition mm -hmm. yourself and rethink, does my process make sense? And all of those things, you really have to start from the beginning and rethink it. And it's hard. Yeah. So when you think about your diverse career and all of the things that you've accomplished, what is one thing that you are most excited about having accomplished within your career, professionally or personally? Well, of course, the thing I'm always most excited about is my beautiful daughter. But I think what's exciting to me is putting together these programs that are very systematic, very structured, very organized and deliver very clear results. And being able to say to other people in the sales arena, this is what I do. And having my friends like you who are consultants who do similar stuff go, I get that. And to then say, oh, process, call Liz. Strategy, mm -hmm. call Liz. Like, that's what I'm really proud of is that people now recognize that, that I do this really unique thing 
that most other people just don't do. And they just, they can't think about it the way I think about it because they don't have my diverse experience, right? They didn't get a graduate degree in economic, in international political economy, right? They're not methodologists by training. So part of my graduate degree is methodology. So Mm -hmm. I'm a methodologist by training. I learned all of these things from a different perspective than most people who do the work that I do. So inevitably, I approach it differently. And this is that thing about diversity, right? So it's my diversity and background rather than coming. I do come out of a sales world, couldn't help it. But I also come out of this educational background that most people who are sales experts or senior sales leaders don't have. They just don't have that piece of the puzzle that I got. That's awesome. It just goes to show you, I love telling brand new people that are getting into sales that college teaches you how to think, right? And you use those tools in various different ways. When you were in college, did you ever think that you would be doing sales strategy? When I was in college, I definitely didn't think that I was going to be teaching people how to sell, you know, as a chemist. So really taking what we've learned and how we do it and we put the pieces of the puzzle together. Right. And you approach it as a chemist and I approach it as an economist, right? So we bring different things to the table when we're doing it. And I will tell you, when I was in school, the last thing in the world I was ever going to be was a salesperson because like that's what I grew up in and I was going to do international trade relations, right? (laughs) I never dreamed I'd be here even though it was right in front of me as a possibility. It wasn't what I was thinking. Mm, I love it. I have enjoyed our time together, Liz. This has been an amazing, amazing conversation. Thank you so, so much. What is the one best way people can get in contact with you? LinkedIn, Liz Hyman. Okay. That's the easiest way. And if you, I have all kinds of content if you want it. So just go to LinkedIn and ask me how to find it. Ask me questions. Happy to do it. But tell me, they need to tell me where you met me because I get all kinds of crazy connection requests and sometimes I ignore them because they're crazy. So say, I saw you, you know, when I'm talking to Wesleyan and I'm like, okay. I'm with you. Yes. In your connection request, always remember we talk about having a nice personalized connection request and make sure you say, hey, I listened to your conversation with Wesleyan and I really want to connect with you because she'll be like, of course, a friend of Wesleyan is a friend of mine. Of course. Happy to connect. Thank you so, so much for your time, your talent, your expertise today. You have given us more than enough today. Thank you. Glad to be here. And that was another episode of the Transform Sales Podcast. Remember, in all that you do, in every way that you can, be sure to transform your sales each and every day. Until next time.